0: today on the matt wall show the backlash against dave Chappelle grows as the media insists that any and all jokes about or criticisms of uh, lgbt people are out of bounds and automatically bigoted they say that lgbt people are marginalized and that's why you can't make these jokes but if you aren't allowed to joke about a group of people isn't that an indication that they are the exact opposite of marginalized also the high school student who shot a teacher and two classmates on wednesday was released on bail on Thursday, less than 24 hours later. What's going on there? And the New York Times claims that 900,000 children have been hospitalized with COVID, which is not even close to true. And also a new study confirms that women are attracted to men who can provide for them financially. What does it say about our society that we needed a study to confirm that obvious fact? We'll talk about all of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. You know, everybody has been talking about abortion lately uh, with what's been happening in the news and down in Texas. And uh, it's good that this conversation is happening. It's great what, what's the law down in Texas. But the problem is for a lot of us, uh, we just don't know exactly what to say, how to engage with these arguments. Uh, and that's why if you're struggling on, on what to say or how to say it when abortion is a topic of conversation, you need to check out a recent new book, What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion. It's already been a number one Amazon new release and a number two Amazon bestseller and it's on second printing already so it tells you how popular this book has been and for good reason because it's a very easy book to use it tells you what to say what not to say and it's proven arguments that have uh, that have worked with everyone. I mean 40 days for life they have even been able to connect with and convert uh, abortion workers people at Planned Parenthood 221 abortion workers have seen the light thanks in large part to a lot of these same arguments here. So go to the experts, go to the people that um, know exactly what to say. It's called What to Say When, the complete new guide to discussing abortion, how to change minds and convert hearts in a brave new world. Go to Amazon or get it directly from 40 Days for Life at 40daysforlife.com. To begin with, I must request, well, not request, but instruct, demand that you uh, sign up for my newsletter if you haven't already. Go to mattwalshreport.com. It's free, so you are without excuse. Don't make me ask again. I am warning you. Now, on to the topic at hand, the, uh, the fallout continues from Dave Chappelle's Netflix comedy special where he uh, dared to crack one or two jokes at the expense of the LGBT alphabet squad. Most recently, the showrunner for Netflix's anti-white series called Dear White People says that he, who identifies now as a she, will be boycotting the network. And by the way, this showrunner, who now goes by Jacqueline Moore, is white, So this is a white man who identifies as a woman and makes an anti-white show about black people boycotting a black man for telling jokes about trans people. It is a tangled web of intersectionality there. Here's what Variety reports. They say, uh, quote, Jacqueline Moore has always considered Dave, Dave Chappelle one of her comic heroes. Quote, his shadow is huge, says Moore, who was a writer and showrunner on Netflix's Dear White People. He's a brilliant, goofy comedian. He's brilliant as a political comedian. He's been brilliant for so, so long, but I also don't think uh, because you've been brilliant means that you're always brilliant. After the Chappelle special, I can't do this anymore. I won't work for Netflix again as long as they keep promoting and profiting from dangerous transphobic content. Uh, She also tweeted, she, in quotes here, I'm reading from Variety, that's what the word they're using. I love so many of the people I've worked with at Netflix, brilliant people and executives who have been collaborative and fought for important art but I've been thrown against walls because I'm not a real woman. I've had beer bottles thrown at me. So, Netflix, I'm done. We should note that Moore, apparently, according to Variety, transitioned into a woman during the pandemic, so, you know, in the last several months. And already he's incensed at the suggestion that he's not a real woman. There have been many other reactions along these lines. Glad, for example, uh, released a statement saying, Uh, Dave Chappelle's brand has been synonymous with ridiculing trans people and other marginalized communities. Negative reviews and viewers loudly condemning his latest special is a message to the industry that audiences don't support platforming anti-LGBTQ diatribes. We agree. And an LGBT group called the National Black Justice Coalition weighed in, saying, With 2021 on track to be the deadliest year on record for transgender people in the U.S., the majority of whom are black transgender people, Netflix should know better. Perpetuating transphobia perpetuates violence. Netflix should immediately pull the closer from its platform and directly apologize to the transgender community. Of course, the claim that there's some kind of epidemic of anti-trans murders, much less that these murders are propelled by comedy specials, is uh, pure fiction. The vast majority of trans murders are drug or prostitution related, or they're due to domestic violence. Um, But the LGBT lobby, you know, reflexively lies about everything. So this is to be expected. The media has likewise been breathless in its condemnations. Here's the headline from NPR. says, For Dave Chappelle, punchlines are dares. But his new special, The Closer, goes too far. And from The Hill, Chappelle called out for hostile transphobia and homophobia in Netflix special. And The Guardian says, Dave Chappelle, Ricky Gervais, and comedy's ironic bigotry problem. And The Daily Beast, Dave Chappelle's pointless transphobia and homophobia, and so on. Now, before we continue, probably makes sense to actually listen to the segments of the special that have provoked all of this ire. Uh, there are primarily two that seem to have, to, to have caused all this trouble. The first we played a few days ago. We'll play it again, just to remind you. Here is uh, Chappelle pointing out that when it comes to deciding what to be offended by, we seem to have our priorities a bit out of whack in our culture. Let's listen.
1: A lot of the LBGTQ community doesn't know the baby's history. He's a wild guy. He once shot a and killed him in Walmart. Oh, this is true, Google it. The baby shot and killed a in Walmart in North Carolina. Nothing bad happened to his career. Do you see where I'm going with this? (laughs) <laughs> in our country, you can shoot and kill a but you better not hurt a gay person's feelings.
0: I guess I should have clarified. Uh, it's a, a bit of setup. There was, was probably necessary that uh, he's talking about a rapper named The Baby. He's not referring to an actual baby who shot and killed someone at Walmart. Uh, though I, I, you know, I, I think I have seen babies walking around with handguns at Walmart. Um, but this is a rapper. His name is The Baby. And in fairness. DeBaby, um, who, you know, of course, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of all of his work, um, says, he says that he shot the, the guy in self-defense in, in the Walmart. Um, the guy was trying to rob him in the middle of a Walmart. and Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know if he did or didn't. But I do know that DeBaby brags in his music about murdering people all the time. I mean, he, like most rappers, glorifies murder, drug dealing, violent crime, and so on. So even if he hadn't actually killed the guy himself, still it would seem far more offensive to promote actual murder than to make insulting comments about gays. So the point from Chappelle stands, no matter the particulars of uh, that case there at Walmart. But I think it's Chappelle's comments about gender and trans people that have gotten most of the attention and have caused most of the uh, the, the backlash of people calling for him to be to be canceled. And here they are here. We canceled
1: JK Rowling my god JK Rowling wrote all the Harry Potter books by herself she sold so many books the Bible worries about her and they canceled her because she said in an interview and this is not exactly what she said but effectually she said gender was a fact and then the trans community got mad as they started calling her a turf I didn't even know what the that was but I know that Trans people make up words to win arguments. <laughs> so I looked it up. TERF is an acronym. Stands for trans exclusionary radical Feminist. This is a real thing. This is a group of women that hate transgender. They don't hate transgender women, but they look at trans women the way we blacks might look at blackface. It offends them. Like, ooh, this is doing an impression of me. Look at it like this. Caitlyn Jenner, whom I've met, wonderful person. Caitlyn Jenner was voted woman of the year. Her first year as a woman. Ain't that something? Beat every bitch in Detroit. She's better than all of you. Gender is a fact. This is a fact. Every human being in this room, every human being on Earth, had to pass through the legs of a woman to be on Earth. That
0: is a fact. Uh, now a couple of points here. in, in fact, you, you notice one thing there that kind of stands out, uh, that even in the context of making the points that he makes here, he's still respecting the pronouns, right? He still calls Caitlyn Jenner, a uh, her and a she. And that's what you find that, that, that it's, it's so rare, even the people who are willing, and it takes guts to do it. I give him credit for it. I'm not trying to take anything away from our split hairs here, but it's not really splitting hairs. Even the people who are are willing to stand up and point out some of the truth and and, and make some of these criticisms, most of them are not willing to go all the way. Very few people, very few, are willing to go all the way on this and totally reject left-wing gender ideology completely. There are very few people willing to do that. Um, A couple other points. First, you know, Chappelle has made jokes about all different groups and demographics. He jokes about white people all the time. Uh, He's a comedian. That's what comedians are supposed to do. Most of the people offended by the two clips I just played would not be offended and have not been offended by any of his jokes about literally any other group of people. None of them. Should the Alphabet Squad really be exempt from all mockery? Should they be the one single group that nobody ever makes fun of? The answer, according to his critics, is yes. That is their answer. You can make fun of anybody, just not them. And the reason they give for that is that uh, they say that uh, attacking LGBT people or or not even attacking, but making jokes about them is uh, punching down. It's punching down. But the actual reason is exactly the opposite of that. You know, there's that old saying, I I don't remember who who coined it originally, but um, that you can tell who has the power in any society based on who you're not allowed to criticize. And that's a rule that will rarely steer you wrong, and it certainly does not here. The reason you can criticize everybody except LGBT people is that they hold the cultural power. You get canceled for making jokes about the Alphabet Squad simply because the Alphabet Squad has the power to cancel people. They, they're the ones who can do it. They, can, they, could choo- they could choose to tolerate such mockery or not, and they certainly choose not to, because you're not going to find much in the way of self-deprecating humility among LGBT leftists or among any any form of leftist. Um, when it comes to leftism, narcissism is part of the game, and a narcissist is not going to be happy with you making any jokes about them at all. Corporate America... Uh, The media, academia, the government, school system, Hollywood, all bow in service, bow in submission to the LGBT lobby. All are largely run by the LGBT lobby. We're told that LGBT people are marginalized. But if you want to know what marginalized actually means and what it looks like, then look at LGBT and imagine the precise opposite of that. They have way outsized influence and power relative to their numbers. That's not what marginalized means. You know what marginalized is? You know know who the marginalized people are? The people who listen to that last segment from Chappelle and agree with it. They're the marginalized ones. The, The people who know that biological sex is a fact. The people who know that only women give birth and who would prefer to live in a society that recognizes that fact. And a society that, uh, that, that cherishes women and femininity because it is unique and special, and not anyone can partake in it just because they identify with it in their heads. Those are the people who are marginalized. And how do you know they're marginalized? Because they're in the majority but their influence is way undersized um, relative to their numbers. That's what it means to be marginalized. It means you're pushed to the peripheral. It means that you're ignored. Okay, When you're ignored and pushed to the peripheral, you're being marginalized. Who, could anyone with a straight face, well, they can, apparently, uh, but it's it's kind of mind-boggling that they can, with a straight face, that anyone with a straight face could claim that LGBT people are <laughs> marginalized, pushed to the peripheral, ignored? Really? I mean, they get their own month. And I think we're in the middle of another month right now, because right now, I believe, is LGBT history month. I could be wrong. So, you know, every month, in, in some ways, a celebration. Again, the, the opposite of marginalized. Marginalized are the people who agree with Dave Chappelle there. They're being marginalized. And that's exactly why, even though what Chappelle is saying, especially at the very end, that everybody who's on earth today or has ever been born had to pass through a woman in order to be born. Like I said yesterday, if someone had told you back in like 20 years ago you know, if you could have looked into the future, if you could have been flipping through the channels and stumbled on a, a, a channel that was sh- broadcasting from 20 years in the future, and you saw that segment, and someone told you that that would be considered controversial 20 years from now, you would be filled with, with you wouldn't believe it. And you and if you did, you'd be filled with dread and terror. Right? Like, are you, so we, we, you're, you're saying society completely loses its mind? Well, yeah. In the future. The reason why it becomes kind of a big deal is because the vast majority of people recognize that this is true. That biological sex is a fact. He uses the word gender there. Really what he means is biological sex. Gender is a you know, gender as it relates to people is, is an invention. Um, biological sex is a fact. Only women give birth. Like this, this is something that everyone recognizes. Most people, the vast majority. And the reason why, you know, they celebrate someone like Dave Chappelle is because a lot of people, even though they recognize these basic truths, they've been, they've been pushed to the margins and now they feel like they need permission. They need someone who's in the mainstream, some prominent person to say whatever, what, what they all recognize to be true. And it's sad that people are waiting for permission to speak basic truths. But that's where we are, and that's what it means to be marginalized. Now let's get to our five headlines. Maybe you've had this experience before of, uh, you, you, know, you got a call or a text or an email from someone posing as an IRS agent or a police officer or the power company, demanding payment by a gift card. Well, if you have, you're probably being targeted for a gift card scam. These fraudsters trick victims into sending online gift cards or reading the numbers from a gift card over the phone. Uh, I mean, it should be a pretty good if someone in the IRS is saying, send me a gift card or a cop is calling you up. uh, It should be a pretty good indication that it's a scam. But sometimes the scams are not always obvious. And that's why it's so important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day. Every day we put our information at risk on the Internet. In an instant, a cyber criminal could harm what's yours, your finances, your credit, everything. That's why it's a good thing there's LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats. And if they detect your information has potentially been compromised, they're going to send you an alert and help you get everything back to normal. Look, nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. So this is pretty funny. Uh, it's, it's funny until it's used as a basis for uh, further censorship, which it will be. But uh, apparently Twitter has rolled out a new warning. So they've got, you know, they've got the uh, misinformation warnings, which really the way the misinformation warnings are applied, it's uh, oftentimes like inconvenient information they call misinformation so if you're talking about COVID and you're not uh, in line with the COVID cult, they're going to put a misinformation warning. They got, they got different kinds of warnings that they'll put on your, um, on your content, potentially. Here's a new one that they just unveiled, and I found out about it because they put it on one of mine. And uh, now they have on Twitter, and I'm pretty sure this is not meant to be a joke, they have intensity warnings. So if you're tweeting, if you put out a, a, an intense tweet, then they'll put a warning on it, a heads up, letting everybody know that this is a little bit intense. So yesterday I tweeted about, um, like we discussed on the show yesterday, vaccinating kids. And I said, I'm not, I'm not going to vaccinate my kids. And I have very good sci- scientifically based reasons for that. Because COVID is not, and we'll, and we'll get more into this in a minute, but COVID is not a serious threat to them. That's why I'm not getting vaccinated. And someone responded to me and said, uh, there's, well, there's plenty of good reasons to vax your kids, even though they aren't at risk. And I responded and said, okay, please give me one good reason. Pretty fair response. That person, by the way, never gave a good reason. Instead, they put their account on private. I uh, Give me one good reason. I'm really curious. If you're admitting that kids are not at risk from COVID, they're at effectively at no risk. It, it, the risk is so small that it's, you know, effectively nil. Um, if, but if you admit that and then you still say there's a good reason to get the vaccine, well, what is it? Tell me what the reason is. I'd love to hear it. Well, this person didn't respond, but on that uh, tweet responding to that guy, Twitter put a, a warning. and says, heads up, conversations like this can be intense. Uh, is anyone going to see a warning like that and say, oh, I don't want any of the intense stuff. I'm going to keep scrolling here. It is true. I do have some intense tweets. There's no denying that. All right, so this is from the Post Millennial, says, is the student who allegedly injured four people in a school shooting at his Arlington, Texas high school. He's been released, um, and he was released on Thursday afternoon after posting $75,000 in bail. Okay, so this guy, not a kid, he's 18 years old, this man, shot... uh, multiple people in a school on Wednesday. And on Thursday, 24 hours later, he's walking out of there on only $75,000 bail. Uh, Simpkins will be confined to his home, pending his trial under the conditions of the bail agreement. He'll also be closely monitored by GPS and will have to undergo regular testing for alcohol and other drugs. Um, He faces three counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. uh, And um, two teachers were hurt in the incident. One was shot. He was shot in the back and has a, a collapsed lung, broken ribs. Uh, and then there were two other people who, who were injured from gunfire. Now, so he's getting out on bail after, I mean, this is a school shooting. I think if you shoot, people get shot in a school, that counts as a school shooting. And he's walking out of there on $75,000 bail a day later. Um. Now, the family, though, they're insisting that, well, this is different from your your typical school school shooting. It's not the same kind of thing. This is from Fox. It says, the family of an 18-year-old student suspected of opening fire and injuring four people at a Texas high school on Wednesday claims that he was being bullied and brought the handgun to protect himself. Um, And the details of the the fight, what they say is that uh, Arlington police said cell phone video shows a fight breaking out. Before Simpkins fired the gun, um, the claim is that the video shows Simpkins was being attacked. And there is a video that I've seen floating around online of and the, the claim is that this is the fight that happened. And it's not really a fight. There's one guy being brutally assaulted while someone else just wails on him. It's not really, what you see in the video anyway is not really a fight. It's also not clear who's doing the wailing on, on who uh, based on that video. So I'm not sure about that what police are saying is that um, is that this altercation, this fight, this assault happened and then uh, the the teacher stepped in to break it up and it seemed like everything was calmed down and that's when allegedly Simpkins went into his backpack, pulled the gun out and started firing. And if that's what happened then number one, that's not self-defense you know something happens in the moment you're being assaulted and you shoot somebody then that's self defense but the it's over and that person is is being restrained and the fight's over and then you pull it out and shoot that's that's revenge that's not that's not self defense and a school shooting because someone was bullied and they're looking for revenge uh that's not all that unique that's very often what you find with these school shootings Fortunately, nobody was killed in this case. It looks like, uh, you know, everyone who was injured is going to recover from their injuries. And from what it sounds like, he wasn't, he didn't just start randomly executing um, his classmates. Thank God. But he brought the gun to school. And then he fired it, apparently after the fight was over. Seemingly to get revenge. Because he was angry. Not, not not all that different from uh, from the you know, what leads up to many different school shootings. And yet he's walking out of there on $75,000 bail a day later. And we have to mention here that the school shooter in this case uh, is a black guy. And the reason why we have to mention that is because it is repeatedly insisted that from BLM and, uh, and the left generally and the media that white suspects get preferential treatment, how often have we heard, I'm sure you've heard this a million times, especially if you spend any time on social media, anytime there's a, a, a shooting or, um, especially a police shooting, what you always hear is about, um, Dylan Roof, you know, the, uh, the, the, church shooter got, was arrested and then got Burger King and they claim he's of course a white, white man shooting, uh, black people. And, and so they claim, oh, this is, this is what they do for white shooters. He killed all these people and they, and they brought him to Burger King. Well, no, they, they didn't bring him. They did not like bring him to the, they didn't on, on the way, you know, to jail. They didn't stop at Burger King and sit down with him. Um, No, they brought him to the interrogation room and, uh, and they, they brought him like a hamburger or something. They just went down the street to get the cheapest hamburger they could find. And they gave it to him because they have to. You you have to you have to feed uh, suspects after you arrest them. You can't withhold food. If you do that, you know it could interfere with the whole case. Uh, it's going to interfere with your ability to convict this person and get the sentence that he deserves. If his defense attorney can claim that uh, this is cruel and unusual punishment, you were you're refusing to feed him and all that kind of stuff. So they're legally required. They do this for everyone. You may be shocked to learn that in, that in every prison in America, they provide food to everybody. Convicted murderers and serial killers, they give them food. They have to do that. Uh, and then Dylan Roof, as he deserves, was convicted and sentenced to death. So I'm just, I'm trying to imagine if this was ex- exact same circumstances, but this was a white school shooter let out on bail 24 hours after being arrested on $75,000 bail, what would we be hearing right now from the media? I think we all know what we'd be hearing. And it is kind of interesting because we have this case along with in the exact same week, as we discussed yesterday, uh, a gang shooting in Chicago where gang members are shooting at each other in the middle of the day, someone is killed and, uh, and, and the DA decides to press no charges at all. They all just walk out scot-free. And yet there's some sort of pro-white systemic bias in the, in the court system? Well, this is certainly not what you would expect to see, is it, based on the theory of pro-white systemic bias in the court system? All right, Biden, uh, President Biden gave a speech about the importance of vaccine mandates yesterday. And at one point he launched into a story and uh, I don't know, I I just couldn't tell what he was trying to get across here. So maybe you can tell me.
2: Jerry, every company uh, needs people like you, every single one, someone who knows uh, what my dad taught me and a lot of people who know me well, including the, the governor's sister who I worked closely with for eight years. My dad used to have an expression. He used to say, everyone's entitled to be treated with dignity and Joey, a job's a hell of a lot more than about a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about your place in the community. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, everything's going to be okay. That's a God's truth. It said every t- ever since he lost, things went south in Scranton, Pennsylvania, when I was a kid, and coal shut down. My dad was not a coal miner. I had a great grandfather who was a coal miner engineer, but, you know, he, he was a salesperson. Everything, we moved down to Wilmington, Delaware. A little town called claymont a little steel town where there's no steel anymore but right on the border of pennsylvania and uh it was always about the dignity of work and what you've been doing here about this pandemic is about protecting the dignity the dignity of your fellow americans you know uh you stayed in an operations mode lining up protective equipment for the rest of the country
0: uh what I'm not exactly sure what he was trying to say there, as he as he took us along this windy windy path of whatever that story was supposed to be. I did pick up on the part about the dignity of work, and you know everybody should have a job, and there's dignity in that. And he tells that story, if we can call it a story, uh, that, that 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 mishmash of of sentences all jumbled together. He tells that while selling this idea of uh, vaccine mandates at on the job. So everyone you know, has a right to a job and there's uh, you know, the, the dignity of work. Meanwhile, if you don't inject this substance into your body, whether you need it or not, maybe you have natural immunity, but even if you, whether you need it or not, if you don't, if you don't inject this substance into your body, we're going to take that job away from you. That's a policy, a mandate you come up with because you respect the dignity of work? Where's the dignity in that? Forcing a drug into people's bodies as a condition of employment, that's dignity? It's not just dignity, he says. It's also economic stimulus.
2: But here's what Wall Street's saying. Goldman Sachs, quote, vaccination will have a positive impact on employment. It means less spread of COVID-19, which will help people return to work. Moody's and Wall Street... Vaccination means fewer infections, hospitalizations, and death. In turn, it means a stronger economy. One economist called vaccine requirements, and I quote, the single most powerful, I didn't say single, the most powerful economic stimulus ever enacted, end of quote. Third point I'd like to make. The report shows that vaccination requirements have broad public support.
0: Well, that economist, uh, if he exists, is a moron. So firing people from their jobs is economic stimulus. It's also the way that we protect the dignity of work. That's actually the the dignity of work and human human dignity generally. That's one of my primary arguments against the vaccine mandate as a condition of employment. Yeah, there's a matter of, of basic freedom and liberty here. But to me, even more importantly... It's dignity. You're not treating human beings with dignity. When you tell someone, we're going to take away your ability to feed your family unless you comply with us and put this substance into your body. Again, whether you need it or not. Speaking of people who don't need it, this is from uh, The Blaze and about uh, the New York Times doing a little bit of fear mongering and then having to issue one of their... um, Standard traditional retractions. It says, the New York Times issued a lengthy correction after numerous mistakes in an article about coronavirus vaccinations for children, including the egregious exaggeration of coronavirus hospitalizations among U.S. children. Uh, the article by Epovora Mendevili documented how the U.S. is forging ahead on full vaccination for children while other countries are experimenting with just one shot after weighing the risks. Um, but in documenting the extent of the coronavirus pandemic among children in the U.S., Mandeville missed the mark by a wide margin. The Times issued a correction, noting several issues with the article. This is their correction, part of it anyway. It says, the article uh, misstated the number of COVID hospitalizations in U.S. children. It is more than 63,000 from August 2020 to October 2021, not 900,000 since the beginning of the pandemic. And then they also were wrong about uh, vaccination policies in Sweden and Denmark they were wrong. I mean, they 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 got five or six details wrong in this article, which means you shouldn't be issuing a re- a correction. This should be just be a full retraction, because the the basis for this article article is wrong. Everything is wrong. You should be retracting it, but instead they they just issue the, the correction. You're never going to convince me that this isn't intentional. I mean, there's there's no way you could be how where 900,000 900,000 900, hospitalizations of of children from COVID. And the real number is 63,000? It's not even as though they added an additional zero by accident, like a typo. Where did you get that number? It it One second on Google will tell you the truth there. And I'm supposed to believe that's an accident? It's not. They get the falsehood out there. It implants in people's minds. And then they know the correction is never as widely seen as the original claim. They know that. So there's lots of people now who have that 900,000 figure in their head when the real number is a fraction of that. And this article is all supposed to be, you know, it, it does, it admits that in most other countries around the world, you know, they are not nearly as eager to start putting kids on full vaccination schedules. They're also not masking kids to to nearly the same extent that we are. we, We are one of the only countries in the world that has decided to act as though children are just as susceptible to the virus as everybody else. Most other countries are not doing that. We are among the only ones to do it. Even countries that Broadly speaking, their lockdowns and their COVID policies have been stricter than ours. Still, most of them recognize that children just are not susceptible. You could put it this way. There is no pandemic for kids. Okay, For kids, as far as our kids are concerned, there is no pandemic. That's how small the risk is to them. In fact, if you look at it, uh, you look at all the deaths all the ch- deaths among children over the last year, you know, year or two years. What you'll find is that less than 1%, less than 1% of all child deaths during that period are attributed to COVID. Less than 1%. Less than point zero 0006%, zero zero six percent point zero 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 six percent of the child population as a whole in this country has died of COVID over the last two years. That's not a pandemic. That's not, a, that's not an epidemic. That's that's it's just not. A great many risks um, are, are, you know, are, are more fatal to kids than COVID is. And we've just decided to ignore that fact. What I've been told, and someone just told me this uh, on Twitter a, f- a couple hours ago, when trying to justify the fact that we are, you know, coming up with policies as, pretending that kids are as acceptable as everybody else, and what I've, and, you know, we, we've heard this many times, but uh, once again, I was told that um, that uh, you, you know one child is too many, and uh, what if my child? Yeah, yeah, it's only point zero 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 six percent, but uh, what, what if my child was in that point zero zero six percent? How would I feel about it then? Well, yeah, if if my if one of my children had been one of the very, very, very few to die of COVID, then yeah, I'd probably be singing a very different tune. Just like if if I had a child who, God forbid, drowned in a pool, I'd probably say we should ban all pools. If I had a child who choked to death on a chicken nugget, I'd be saying, let's ban all chicken nuggets. You know, I would certainly wish that I could go back in time and erase, you know, if it were up to me, pass these sweeping laws, you know, to keep my child alive. Of course I'd want to do that. You know, personally, as a parent, there is probably no tyranny that I, that I wouldn't visit upon you and the world in order to save my children's lives. There's probably nothing that I wouldn't do to save my own children's lives. And I admit that. But when it comes to making public policy. You cannot make public policy. with from uh, While assuming the mentality of a desperately grieving parent. Because um, emotionally for me to feel this way about my own kids. Is entirely justifiable and understandable but it is not a basis for public policy obviously yeah if i if i whoever anyone listening right now if i knew that locking you specifically in your home for the rest of your life is what i needed to do for some reason to keep one of my kids alive i would do it i would take away all your liberty to keep my kid alive i recognize that emotionally But does that mean that we should make policy that way? No. All right. Here's uh, Terry McAuliffe in my former home state of Virginia. Now, Terry McAuliffe has said that uh, the the critical race theory is not being taught in schools. Uh, So all this stuff uh, in this, uh, the school board meetings and everything, this is all, it's actually racist. He says this, um, campaign against critical race theory is racist in and of itself, because critical race theory isn't being taught at all. This is all a dog whistle. But then he's asked, uh, in this interview with local media, if he could even tell us what critical race theory is, and he can't. Listen.
1: So how do you define it?
2: It, it? Anita, it is not taught here in Virginia. But how do
1: you define it?
2: Doesn't matter. It's not taught here well, in Virginia, so, so I'm not gonna to spend your my time. On, on what it is. I'm not even spending my time, because the school board and everyone else has come out and said it's not taught. It's racist. It's a dog whistle. But
1: if we don't have a definition, how can we say it's racist? I just want a definition from you.
2: It's not taught here in Virginia. We can ask about any topic. Here's what I've said all along, and it really bothers me. You know, it really bothers me. This whole idea of stirring parents up to create divisions. Our children are going through such challenges today because of COVID, and we're talking about something here today wasting precious viewers' time.
0: So he has, of course, and you can always, this is always a fun thing to do when you're dealing with Democrats or any leftist. um, Just the first thing you should do, whatever term they're using, get them to define it. What exactly are you talking about? And they'll always treat it as some sort of trick question that you simply, they're using words and you want to know what they mean by those words. And they're going to do, well, what do you mean? Listen. What is this, a gotcha? This is a game of gotcha? No, this is a game of, I want to understand what the hell you're saying. That's what the game is. So he has no idea what critical race theory is, and yet he's he doesn't know what it is, yet he's quite certain that um, it's not in the school system. When, of course, it is. When When kids are taught from a young age in school, as they are now, that uh, America is systemically racist. You know that it was that it was uh, that it's racist at its very core. Uh, that all white people are uh, have privilege by nature of their race. That all white people are inherently racist. That no black person or or person uh, you know non white person can be racist because race is based on uh, power and privilege. Power plus plus prejudice equals racism. When kids are taught that, all of that—that that is critical race theory. That is critical. Crit- that's sort of a, it's a distillation, uh, a boiled down version of critical race theory. So glad I could help you out, McCall. Oh, one more thing here before we get to reading the comments. This is from uh, CNN. Sad news. Ap- apparently, sad news. Supposedly, says the ivory-billed woodpecker, along with 22 other species of birds, fish, mussels, and other wildlife is set to be declared extinct and removed from the endangered species list, um, according to U.S. wildlife officials. It says, the U.S. uh, Fish and Wildlife Service said, for the species proposed for delisting today, the protections of the Endangered Species Act came too late, with most uh, either extinct, functionally extinct, or in steep decline at the time of listing. Also slated for delisting are the Bachmann's warbler, two species of freshwater fishes, eight species of southeastern freshwater mussels, and eleven species from Hawaii and Pacific Island. Uh, sorry, I'm s- scrolling through this thing eagerly, trying to see if they list pandas on this, and they don't. No, the pandas are still lingering along. Well, yeah, I don't know what we're gonna do without the uh, the Bachman's warbler. That's a great, isn't that? That's a great tragedy. The Bachman's warbler isn't gonna be joining us on Earth anymore. I, I'm sorry. I who can't Who cares? Why does it? Who cares that these species are going extinct? What do we need them for? This, this, this one version of a woodpecker isn't going to be around anymore. Oh, okay, well, there's other woodpeckers around that can fill their place. I'm sure they can. They can pick up the woodpecker baton. They can't really pick it up because you know. But metaphorically speaking, I just don't understand. And, and if we're told that, that climate change is going is to kill us all. Then why are we trying to keep other species around that are emitting, you know, with, with their carbon emissions? It adds up. So should we should we be celebrating this, kind of thinning the herd a little bit? I don't know, but, but for climate change and environmentalists, they want to thin the herd among people, not among the Bachman's warbler or the uh, or the ivory-headed woodpecker. That's what they want to do. So when they hear for these, this is how twisted these people, I know when I say, I don't care if these species are going extinct, people hear that and they're horrified by it. It sounds like I'm some sort of sociopath and maybe I am, but consider the fact that for a lot of other people, if when they hear about human populations declining, they're happy about that. They're more upset about the decline of the Bachman's warbler than they are about people. Uh, declining in population numbers. So if you could do that, with, if you could say, as, as so many people do, about their own species, ah, what do we need so many of us for? You could say that about your own species. I can't say it about a about a, a species of mussel or some kind of clam or whatever, you know, horned owl in the forest. I'm sorry. I just don't, I don't, I don't care. It's fine. They can go extinct. Here, listen, millions of animal species uh, went extinct before human civilization ever existed. Okay, we've had human civilization for, I don't know, 10,000 years, let's say. Millions, billions of, of animal species went extinct before that ever happened. Before we were even building you know, before, before pyramids were, had even been built, millions of animal species went extinct. Was that some kind of great tragedy? Now, now it's like species extinction is part of the cycle of life. And now every single species that goes extinct, it's our fault. If we weren't around, many of these species would still be going extinct. And it's some kind of. It's now that we're here, it's a tragedy, and we got to keep them. We we gotta, we have to hold all of these. Do do our best to hold all of these different warblers and woodpeckers into existence. Hold them in the palm of our hand. Oh no, we can't lose any of them. Why? All right, I'm getting probably more passionate about this than I need to. Uh, I just I have a thing. You know, I don't like pandas, and I don't like the Bachman's warbler either. Good riddance. Let's get uh, now to reading the comments.
1: Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame? Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang.
0: Crystal says, Matt, isn't the fact that the dog was wary towards an unfamiliar man a good thing since you wanted it as protection for your family? That was your only reasoning for wanting a dog at all, right? Uh, yeah, I'm glad that he's that he's protective, but... My issue is I'm not going to tolerate disrespect in my own home. Okay. And the dog doesn't get off the hook. Hold everyone to the same standard. Uh, Let's see. Lou says, is Walsh going to rent places throughout the U.S. so he can attend local school board meetings? Walsh would criticize some Hollywood celebrity if they crashed a local school board meeting where they don't live, but it's fine if he does it. Local people are perfectly capable of speaking for themselves. They don't need Walsh riding in as their spokesman. But of course, Walsh knows that this is good publicity for himself and his bottom line. Now Walsh is hawking some quack treatment for puffy eyes. He's a real man of principle. Listen, Lou. You can slander me all you want. But I will not have you saying these things about Genucell by Chamanix. Which can solve under ag eye Uh, under-eye puffiness in a matter of days. How dare you, sir? Uh, David says, uh, Matt, what is your favorite Bible translation? Did I answer, did I already answer this one? I'm having, I'm having a deja vu. Well, anyway, favorite Bible translation. Uh, I'm not, I'm not uh, especially loyal to one particular translation or another. Uh, and if you don't if, if, if you don't know Hebrew or Greek, um, which are the the language the languages that the the Old and New Testament respectively were written in, if you don't know those languages, like if you know those languages and you can read the scriptures in their original languages, then do that. I mean, that's the best thing you could do. But if you don't, then unfortunately you are relegated to, and this is the case for any kind of translate, even if it's not the Bible. I mean, you could be reading Russian literature or something. Um, if, if you don't know the original languages, you're, you're left with somewhat of a pale imitation of, of, of the, of what there really is. And there's always this kind of balance that translators have to strike between, uh, do I, do we literally translate the words or do we try to capture the overall meaning? Cause that's not always the same thing. That's the way language works. And so with any translation, again, Bible or any kind of book, there are going to be some translations that are more literal, some that are more focused on meaning, and then some that are just terrible. And, um, so with, with, you know, so I, I kind of, it depends on what book of the Bible I'm reading, you know, that might determine which translation I prefer. The flowery language of the KJV, King James Version, is um, certainly does not really capture the act, especially for the Gospels and the New Testament. I mean, the Gospels, the, the, the epistles, this was, these were written in plain language. For ordinary people. They weren't written in the, you know, in the equivalent of Shakespearean eloquent prose, right? Um, So I don't really like that for for the New Testament. But I'll, I'll, you know, for Old Testament, I kind of think it works. So that's my answer, which isn't really an answer at all. I'm equivocating. And uh, finally, Robert says, Matt, I believe duels were more of a daybreak kind of thing. High noon seems like a sheriff slash outlaw deal. At any rate, this culture is screwed. Uh, Yeah, well, daybreak is way too early for a duel. I need a little bit of time. I need to have some coffee if I'm going to participate in a duel. And the thing is, I'm actually not. I think I've advocated before for legalizing dueling. I think there's there's an argument you could be that could be made for that. Um, But if you're going to do it, then then you have to really do it. And what they've done in Chicago is they've kind of just done it in effect. They've in effect decriminalized dueling. And if you're also going to have a duel, there, there have to be rules that you respect. Right, you've got, it's not going to be five, five on five, just spraying bullets all over the place. You know, you, there's a certain, you're, you're going a c- certain number of paces apart. It's, it's timed, you, f- you figure out what the rules are. And you settle your differences that way. I think you could make an argument that a society that has legalized dueling is going to be a much more polite society. It's going to be a society where you put your shopping carts back. If you know that I could challenge you to a duel, if you don't. Uh, but what they've done in Chicago is diff it's, it's not really legalized dueling. It's just legalized utter total chaos where gangs can shoot each other willy-nilly in the street, hitting innocent bystanders in the process potentially, and uh, they're not going to be charged with any crime. This coming Tuesday, October 12th, we're taking backstage to an entirely new level. Instead of the usual Daily Wire studio, we'll be live streaming our conversation on stage at the famous Ryman Auditorium right here in Nashville, doing what we do best, making sense. This will be an event and a live stream unlike any we've done before, and we're thrilled to be able to share it with all of you. Plus, we'll be making some extremely exciting announcements, um, which you will not want to miss, so be sure to tune in. Join myself, Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens. Jeremy Boring, Michael Knowles, Andrew Claven, and our live audience for a backstage like never before. Tuesday's live stream will begin at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Central. So head to dailywire.com or DailyWire YouTube to catch the show. And also, this is a reminder to everyone listening that as the Daily Wire continues to grow, we're seeking talented candidates for open positions across several departments within the company. Our current list of open positions on the team here at Daily Wire includes, but is not limited to, video editor, writer and reporter, publicity manager, sales representative, social media content creator, uh, podcast marketing manager, conversion rate optimization specialist, and 2 p.m. podcast host. Well, that's not a good sign. If you think you've got what it takes to join one of the fastest-growing conservative media companies in America, we want to hear from you. For, for a full list of job openings and open positions and position details, and to apply, please visit dailywire.com slash careers. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. You know, we've been conditioned not to trust our own common sense anymore, which is why we so often need studies to confirm the obvious. But most of us don't trust studies either, and for good reason in in most cases. So that's not much help. But here's, here's one study that I think we can take to the bank, so to speak. There's a pun there, which will make more sense as we proceed. Reading now from an article on the Institute for Family Studies website, written by Rosemary L. Hopcroft, which sounds like a character in an Agatha Christie novel, and I don't mean that as as an insult. Um, She writes, quote, In 21st century America, over half of all married couples are dual-earner families, and men are no longer expected to be the sole source of financial support for their families. It seems, therefore, that possession of means would no longer matter as much for men's marriage prospects, while at the same time it may matter more for women's marriage prospects. Yet my new research, published in the journal Evolution and Human Behavior, shows that possession of means still matters when it comes to marriage and family formation for men, but not for women. In other words, men are going to have an easier time getting married if they have money, but for women, it doesn't matter much one way or another. Continuing, it says, for men, as income increases, the probability of marriage also increases such that men in the highest income category are about 57 percentage points more likely to marry than men in the lowest income category. The same is not true for women. High-income men are more likely than low-income men to marry, while income is unrelated to marriage for women. Given that marriage involves choice on both the man and the woman's part, these results suggest that women are more likely to choose to marry men with good financial prospects, while a woman's financial prospects are less important to men when choosing a marriage partner. Now, every broke single guy listening to this right now is certainly well aware of this dynamic, all too familiar with it. But again, these days, we need this kind of research to tell us what we already know, though many of us have chosen to pretend we don't know it. A little more from the article says, not only are high-income men more likely to marry, they're more likely to stay married too. Figure two, talking about the chart, shows the probability of divorce for those who have been married at least once and reveals that for men, the probability of divorce declines as income rises, such that men in the highest income category are about 37 percentage points less likely to divorce than men in the lowest income category. For women, the probability of divorce increases as income rises, perhaps mostly due to reverse causality and the fact that uh, divorced women are more likely to have to support themselves financially. For men, the results suggest that women are more likely to divorce low-income men um, than high-income men. Now, the cynical interpretation of all this is that women are materialistic and superficial, and some women are, just like some men are, but that doesn't explain these Trends. Generally speaking, as the study demonstrates and thousands of years of human experience confirms, women are looking for stability. They're looking for a provider. They value ambition. They value work ethic in a man. And that's anything but superficial to value those things. On the other hand, men simply for the most part don't care about a woman's career ambitions. They don't want a lazy bump on a log either, but they value and are attracted to a different sort of energy and ambition in women. I've said before that my wife is extremely talented, has many skills, more skills than I have, and is quite ambitious, but she doesn't have a professional career. She she parents ambitiously. She mothers ambitiously. She um, pours her energy into her family. She has many creative talents and always finds different outlets for them. Sometimes she'll find outlets that earn money, sometimes not. But the money doesn't really matter to me. Um, I didn't marry her in hopes that she would provide an income for me. No man gets married for that reason. Even men who are married to working women, as plenty are, still didn't choose those women because of their income potential. Women hopefully aren't choosing men solely on income, but the man's ability to provide for his family will be a major factor in her decision. For men, it's just not. Men are not thinking about that. They're not thinking when they're when they're with a woman and thinking about marriage. They're not that, well, she would do great at providing an income for the family. If they think that you can, they may see that as a bonus, but that's, they're not making decisions based on that. And it also doesn't mean, by the way, that low-income, men, low-income single men are out of luck. A woman is also assessing potential. So even if you aren't making much money now, she might still consider you an excellent match if she sees that you work hard and have aspirations and the drive to achieve them. Women are good at this, by the way. They have a natural intuition about these sorts of things. A good wife will often have a clearer idea of her husband's career potential than he does. She can't anticipate his future success, even if his predictions about his own future are far, far more modest than hers. What this all means, boiled down, is that men and women are different, and they want different things. Our cultural institutions have spent years and decades trying to collapse these two categories into one ambiguous, indistinguishable mess, and yet in spite of that, still these fundamental differences remain. Girls are told from a young age, I mean, it's hammered into their heads that they shouldn't look to men to be providers. And boys are told that they shouldn't see themselves in that role. And yet, both groups gravitate this way anyway. Attempts are made to evade these differences, get around them. And most of these attempts end in disaster. Note how a woman's likelihood of divorce increases as her income increases. While the trend is exactly the opposite for men. And that's because... Women are attracted to men who provide. So if he pours himself into that role as provider, the woman's attraction will grow stronger and deeper. Of course, some men can go too far. They prioritize their careers over their families. And many divorces have happened as a result of that. But as long as he's putting his family first and valuing his job in large part because he values his family and takes his provider role seriously, then it should only strengthen his marriage. Yet a woman who invests herself more and more into, the, into her career, is not going to find that it has the same positive effect on her marriage necessarily, because her husband doesn't fundamentally see her as a provider. He may support her career, but he doesn't find her career ambition attractive in the same way that a woman does for a man. And th- th- there are a lot of men who listen who are listening to this right now and feel like they have to disagree with me and say, "No, that's not true. I, I, my, my woman is uh, my wife is a very ambitious in her career and a great businesswoman." And I, I just find it so sexy and attractive. Eh, no, you don't. Not really. I mean, you're saying that because you think you have to, but you, you don't really. Again, thousands and thousands of years of 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 human behavior tell us the truth here. And also, if the woman becomes more successful in her career than, than the man is, in his, it can lead to resentment. Because the man will begin to feel that he has no essential role, that he's no longer necessary. This is not me prescribing how things should be. I'm just describing how they are and always have been. We've been conditioned to recoil from the notion of gender roles. The term almost always is used in a pejorative way now. But at their root, gender roles were never rules. It wasn't society saying what men and women should do or must do. Gender roles were our way of categorizing what men and women already naturally tend to do. And it's good to have a grasp on that. Because without it couples go into marriage not sure what to do or what their role should be. Invariably they end up stepping on each other's toes competing with rather than complementing each other. This is why it's good to have a healthy understanding of and respect for traditional gender roles quote-unquote even if you're going to do something different in your own family. It's good to know what the original recipe is before you come up with your variation of it. What happens these days is that both the man and the woman stand in the kitchen dumping all kinds of competing ingredients into the bowl, mixing it together, and the end result is confused and weird and rarely successful. And that's the result of trying to deny what we all inherently know to be true. So who are we canceling today? We're not canceling gender roles, because those can't be canceled, not completely. Instead, I guess this is another reverse cancellation. We're canceling the people who have tried to cancel the gender roles, because that's just never actually going to work. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodasky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart, And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021.
1: Hey, everybody, this is Andrew Claven, host of The Andrew Klavan Show. You know, some people are depressed because the republic is collapsing, the end of days is approaching, and the moon's turned to blood. But on The Andrew Klavan Show, that's where the fun just gets started. So come on over to The Andrew
0: Klavan Show and laugh your way through the fall of the republic with me, Andrew Klavan.